here it is, another episode of the Infinite Banter Podcast. Welcome in. Thanks for tuning in to the show here. A lot to talk about on this one. The last couple have been more music, hip-hop based, and this one I'm going to take it more to a Halloween slash horror genre vibe, like a little more Halloween-centric. Really excited to bring this interview I did with Tommy McLaughlin. You might know him as the writer and director of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, one of my favorite movies in the Jason Friday the 13th series. Really fun talking to him. Had a blast reminiscing about that movie and things he's done. Can't wait to play that for you guys and stay tuned for that. Have a lot of other things I need to talk about. I need to talk about Fear the Walking Dead. I have a tangent to go off on that finale. I'll talk about that later on. Also, The Walking Dead Season 10 premiered last week. Got to talk about that. American Horror Story 1984. Got to talk about that show. It's uh, episode four. So as you can tell, I've got a lot of horror genre stuff in this episode. So if you're a horror fan, this is definitely the episode for you. Since I am doing kind of like a Halloween vibe, I started to think of movies that people have overlooked in the horror genre, movies that that I love. Wrote down 10. They're not in any kind of order, but I'm going to list off 10 movies that I feel like don't get the love that they deserve. And I know around this time, I like to watch horror movies and things like that. So I'm going to give you guys 10 movies that I feel should get their due, check these out, seek them out, watch them, instead of watching the same old movies every uh, Halloween. Here's a couple couple that maybe you overlooked, maybe that you need to check out. So I'll mention those at the end. And also, I need to bring up my number seven on my top 10 MCs list. And also, shout out to Cool Kim, who was on recently. Check out his new album, Demo Music, coolkimumc.com. So without further ado, let's talk to Tommy McLaughlin about Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6. But before we do anything, before we talk about any of this stuff I mentioned, the show never begins until Daryl McDaniels, the one and only DMC, says this. Yo, yo, what's up? This is me, DMC, the K-I-N-G, the greatest MC in history. And right now, you're listening to Infinite Banter, because we will banter on forever, because this is the only place for all of y'all to ever be. I.B. Infinite Banter. Are you checking out the Infinite Banter podcast? I am Mark Jolliffe, and I am pleased to be joined by the writer and director of Friday the 13th, Jason Lives Part 6, one of my favorite movies in the series, the man who was responsible for that awesome flick. You know him from also One Dark Night, numerous TV films to his credit, writer and director, musician, and mime, the one and only Tommy McLaughlin. How you doing, Tommy? I'm doing fine. I guess I shouldn't have answered that question when you asked about the mime thing. It's just been like... <laughs> Five seconds of silence. But yeah, guilty as charged back in the day. I I was a mime, and that sort of allowed me to play monsters in a number of different horror movies in the past. And uh, also the Captain Star in The Black Hole, which was uh, something that at the time we didn't think that movie would ever have any kind of cult status, but I guess it kind of does. And I did watch Prophecy yesterday because I saw it on your credits, and I was like, let me check out Prophecy. And Because I I saw you and um, uh, what's his name? The guy who played the Predator. We're in yeah, that Kevin together. Peter, Kevin Peter Hall, yeah. I'll just skip to, I'll just go to that right away. How was that experience for you, being a mime and working with the uh, the monster in that one, the deformed, was, mutated bear? I, I, what I was was a frustrated director at that point in my career. It's just like I really wanted to be behind the scenes, and yet, you know, I, I had this 
ability and uh, talent and craft of having studied mine with Marcel Marceau in Paris. So, uh, you know, when John Frankenheimer and Robert Rosen, who were the producers on it, you know, approached me to do this, I thought, okay, well, it's going to give me three to four months of working under one of, you know, America's leading, you know, television directors as well as feature film directors, John Frankenheimer. So I kind of took the job on and learned how to run on all fours with 150 pounds on my back because it was like this bear mutated bear costume and so it was an intense experience but at the same time you know getting to know kevin was incredible he was you know sweetest man and it was so heartbreaking to have lost him years ago yeah um and you know it, it was it was fun i gotta say i mean in, in, in the scheme of things it was you know a d- difficult job but it was certainly fun to you know be on a huge picture like that and you know be up in canada so all in all yeah it was a good experience and sticking with the mime theme for a second, too, I was wondering when you directed Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6, since Jason is a murderous mime in a sense, did, did yeah. that help your mime background help you uh, direct such a yeah, the, uh, cult figure? When I, when I kind of went into the feature film world, um, I really was very obsessed with doing you know visual films, you know, movies where it wasn't so much about what was said, it was about what was not said. Uh, eventually even made a movie called The Unsaid uh, <laughs> with Andy Garcia. Right. But uh, this, this this thing with, the, with the, obviously with Jason was, you know, trying to find moments of expression, you know, with a character that doesn't doesn't speak some of it is just the way he you know reacts to something um the slowness of, of his head moving up or tilting to the side trying to understand something or the speed of which you know he goes after certain things and other things that where he, he walks more in a kind of a stalking fashion so you know all, all of that was part of a you know kind of knowing physical training and understanding you know how to communicate with it and there's that really cool scene when he uh, <laughs> confronting the paintballers. The scene has him holding the the machete, and you pan down, and then there's the full arm, and he's kind of looking at it like, eh, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a funny moment. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I need this, but I don't need this attached to it. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing I like about, and I I love uh, Jason Liz, by the way, it's one of my favorite in the series. I love how you balanced comedy and horror at the same time. It's it's not easy to do that. How difficult was that for you? Well, the most difficult thing was to you know convince them that I could do this because at that point no one had sort of made a satire of the horror movies at the same time of making one. Um, you know there'd been you know examples and certain things that were more comedy than horror, uh, but had horror elements to it. But I really wanted to still make you know a monster movie. You know making Jason into an unstoppable you know force with the lightning bolt and things and yet have the characters have a kind of a sense of humor and irreverence about the whole thing you know like you know i've seen enough horror movies to know anybody wearing a mask is never friendly i mean you know things like that that sort of you know were in jokes to a horror audience and as long as i didn't make fun of jason which i had no intention of you know the producers were fine with it and i was given a lot of creative freedom on that uh which is what the other thing that was so great is they just trusted that you know i knew what i was doing and they wanted you know they wanted something unique with the series uh well they always do you know the one has to be somehow a little more special than the last one so i was given as as i said a lot of a lot of freedom to be able to just try some stuff and also just trying to come up with kills that could be funny on one hand you know like smashing that guy that you know gets his arm torn off we just talked about you know into a 
into a tree that had a happy face on it. Oh, right. You know, <laughs> so just trying to you know put the jokes in there, or the or the fact that she kills the uh, Elizabeth in the puddle, uh, and and you see the American Express card. That float. scene is great. That, that I and, just watched uh, it the other day, yeah. and I couldn't stop laughing with that. When she tries to pay Jason, like like money's gonna you know stop everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, but it, you know, in a in in a normal being held up. You know, you think some, what, what somebody wants is your money, you know, because it's the old money of your life, you know. But in Jason's case, it's just your life, you know, forget about the money. <laughs> and then the American Express card floating was obviously, you know, to be able to get at that time was such a popular commercial. Don't leave home without it. And there would always be somebody in the theater that would yell that out, you know, which got <laughs> another laugh, which is what I was hoping would happen. One of my favorite comedic moments, too, is very, very beginning when Tommy's trying to light the match and it starts raining and he's just like, yeah. he's still trying, you know, instead of trying to run away or find a weapon or something, he's, he's giving it his all to get that thing lit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it's funny because recently I saw a screening of it and it's amazing how it still works um, as a, as a film. I think definitely, the humor definitely. helps a lot. Um, but the, uh, the biggest laugh in the whole movie was something that was just a kind of a quick throwaway thing where one of the little girls is asleep in the bed and there's a you know copy of no exit the book on her you know that she had fallen asleep to and i was just looking for something for her you know to, you know to have in her hands when she was asleep and i just kind of grabbed that off the shelf that was there with the props and that gets the biggest laugh you know which surprises me you know, still to this day but you know just anybody that knows the book and you know and a child reading it and then of course obviously you know <laughs> the situation that oh they're for in, sure <laughs> it all kind of you know put together a, a, a very very comic moment how well familiar were you with the franchise when you first got hired to do part six not very at all i had seen the first one which i liked very much you know the original friday the 13th which wasn't even jason and then to be honest i had not seen all the other ones and part of that was I don't want to say arrogance on my part, but if you were a filmmaker in, in Los Angeles and you're trying to make you know, a horror movie, I was interested in making much more gothic horror movies because right. the slasher thing was just took off. And you, know, you could get a deal pretty much anywhere in town if you had a, a script that had somebody with their face covered and you know, knives or some weapon of, of some sort and you know, a forest or, or some isolated area, desert something. And girls, you know, to kill. And I just kind of didn't want to do that. I really, you know, I kind of grew up on the, the Hammer horror movies from England and the Edgar Allan Poe movies that Roger Corman did. And right. just, you know, the more kind of classic, uh, The Innocence, uh, the Deborah Carr movie, you know, and and The Haunting. You know, I, I very much loved that part of the genre. So when the offer came, it was like, God, I was all set to do a comedy Um this thing called date with an angel which was the movie i did after friday right um and so my mind was very much in that in that mode but you know i i said well if i can put humor into it and you know and i love horror so let me see if i can kind of make a gothic horror movie within the you know the franchise of a friday the 13th so i sat there at paramount in the screening room and watched all of them back to back you know so i got a sense of everything that has come before and sort of you know looked at the ones that i thought worked um you know i thought that in part four was very good you know the the final chapter um i thought that was well directed and things and then there was things and other ones that i thought okay well that's an interesting kill can i do something different from that so it was you know basically like you know <laughs> studying for an exam and then you got to see if you pass <laughs> So I, you know, I kind of went into it that way. But since that time, I've become, you know, very much a, you know, Friday fan, and and you know, I just am so 
enamored by the, the the fandom with the series and how it keeps growing every year and now not having you know friday for the, the last 10 years i mean there really is this savage desire to find if you're not going to make them we're going to make them ourselves and so there's all these fan films that are coming up you know which i think is so cool that you know i don't think that's happened before in any genre a horror genre uh, or any anything where you say fine studio's not going to do it we'll, we'll do it and here we are over 30 years later talking about part six you know and in a series yeah. that has so many so many movies and you know yeah. and you're bringing up the classic horror and i i like the beginning of this too because it has a real frankenstein feel you know with yeah it. yeah i make no no bones about saying no that but that was the influence you know that it was the job was bring you know jason back figure it out and i thought well i can't do better than frankenstein you know but, but now i just have to figure out how the hell do you get a lightning bolt into a guy in a coffin so <laughs> then the <laughs> The rest was just invention, you know, having Tommy freak out and grabbing of all things, a pole, you know, off the fence and, you know, just so a series of things that, you know, kind of became the lightning rod to bring him back. And it's just funny, too, because I was watching it the other day because I haven't seen it in a while. I was like, oh, my God, it's Horseshack. I forgot he was in this scene. <laughs> Ron Polillo yeah. from Welcome Back, Cotter. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know, I, I mean, I didn't hire him because of that. I, I literally hired him because I loved his comic character and i thought he made a great sidekick i guess i was sort of thinking in a weird way of of like um sal minio to uh, james dean in rebel without a cause is that kind of goofy you know oh i don't know about this you know nervous you know sidekick who you could imagine was in a institution you know along with tommy who had his own agenda right. of what, what he had to you know have have happened before he could rest at night um but uh, yeah, the, the 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 other interesting thing is Tom Fridley, who played Court, is uh, John Travolta's uh, nephew. So you know, oh, we have these is that right? These okay. kind of, yeah, welcome back, Cotter connections into that. You know, which of course you know vintage '80s, you know, fan fodder there. So all you need was Boom Boom Washington somewhere to pop up. And, <laughs> <laughs> and the casting was really good in this. I mean. As a V fan, Jennifer Cook is in it. She's from the V series. And you had yeah. Renee Jones, who went on to be on forever on Days of Our Lives, and uh, yeah. Tom Matthews. Talk about the casting of it. Uh, it must have came together pretty well because everybody seemed to really, really do well with these roles. Yeah, I mean, I had a great, uh, great casting casting directors. Um, and they just, you know, they brought in sort of all the young up-and-coming, you know, people. And they used, they, they had used these casting directors before on, I think, the, the two previous Fridays, if I can remember correctly. Um, and they just, you know, they, you know, the, I, I got obviously to choose the people, but I had some just wonderful choices. And I was really looking for that kind of charismatic, you know, young actor, you know, that there's something about them that was very watchable. And you never know if the chemistry is going to work, you know, getting, you know, Darcy DeMoss and Tom Fridley together for that, you know, the motorhome scene. And, of course, the, the key was having, you know, Jennifer and Tom hit it off well so that you had that rapport going back and forth in terms of how, how you're going to stop this this killer. Um, but, yeah, everybody in there just got along so well and, um, you know, it was like a family, you know, you know, in, you know, the old sense of you make a movie and you become all bonded together. But this family has gone on, you know, almost 35 years now where we're still seeing each other, still talking to each other, still Facebooking, you know, different things. And, of course, we see each other at these conventions that uh, come along, which is great. And Tom Matthews was the third version of Tommy in a row. So that was the other part of it, too. So you're once again, you're recreating Tommy. Yeah. Um, and it was it was also you know Tom brought his own 
you know, spin to it. Uh, you know, and I, I also just wanted the guy that was a hero, but also could be funny. And uh, Return of the Living Dead, you know, obviously, he, you know, I knew he, he knew some humor, <laughs> and you know, right. and he, and he also had a very kind of serious approach to his mission. And you, you know, and and because you know, if you look at it logically, it's kind of an absurd you know, mission that he has, but, you know, he was really screwed up from what happened with, with, uh, you know, Jason in part four. So, you know, it, we thought John Shepard who had done it in five was going to be doing the part. I mean, when I wrote it, that's kind of who I had in mind, um, because I just figured that's what they were going to do, but that deal didn't work out for some reason. So, you know, we had to kind of start fresh with looking for a new Tommy and, um, you know, Tom Matthews was, was, you know, the choice. So, uh, you know, I was to this day, very, very pleased that, that, that worked out the way it did. And Tom has, you know, continued to start appearing in some of these fan films. Now, you know, the Tommy Jarvis character just keeps going. And I did see for the video game, you both are involved yeah. with that. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I got pulled in to do, um, the Pamela Voorhees tapes, you know, which were the, the, the things that uh, that she recorded the night that they were out looking for their her son's body in the lake. And so she reveals a bunch of things, including, you know, Jason's father. Elias Voorhees is not actually Jason's father. There was another man that she was raped. And, uh, you know, that, that caused the, the great issue in the family that, you know, Jason wasn't really... Elias' son, so he, you know, he treated him very badly, and of course treated his wife very badly, and so there was a, you know, I, I wanted to kind of take the idea that I had initially in the in Jason Lives about the father, you know, being a, a character in there and expand on it a bit, um, even though I could only do it, you know, through the uh, through audio on that, but it was fun, and then of course Tom Matthews coming in and you know having to recreate his likeness for it was very cool. Uh, and uh, I know he was very excited about being part of that. Were you looking to get the uh, the father character in Jason Lives, or did it just not work out? Or yeah, I wrote it. Um, there's uh, you know time time to plug. Uh, I, I, there's a Go book for it. <laughs> called uh, A Strange Idea of Entertainment, which is the line that the caretaker uses. You know when he looks at the camera in Jason Lives, and it's a strange idea of entertainment. Um, conversations with tom mclaughlin and joe matthew uh, joe madre did uh, a hell of a job of kind of researching everything in my life everything that i've ever made television commercials uh, and of course movies and put together a really terrific you know q a book with tons of pictures and stuff and in the back of that book we also included the um treatment for Friday the 13th and so you can see exactly how I kind of followed the treatment that I wrote for it and when it gets to the end you know there's a scene back in the cemetery you know where we started the movie and the caretaker uh, is showing uh, Jason's father you know the the grave and that he's taking care of it for him as as requested and the father pays him and you know and then stares down at the grave and then it went from the father's eyes to you know that shot of Jason underwater, and you realize there was going to be some sort of connection. Um, but the feeling was from the the brass at, at Paramount is people were very pissed off uh, at the end of Friday Part Six because you basically were telling the the audience that you know that John Shepard as Tom Tommy Jarvis was going to be the next Jason, the way he looked in the mirror and with the mask and all that stuff. And they said, you know, whatever we do, we cannot give the audience any inkling that the next movie is going to be about Jason's dad, you know? And I said, well, I don't think so. And I go, well, we don't want to take the risk. So we ended up 
taking that out of the script, so we never shot that. Um, but we did do like the storyboards, and it's it's in the uh, Camp Crystal Lake Companion uh, DVD. You know, they show a recreation and actually get the actor who played Martin, the caretaker, to do the voice. And then um, cut to a year ago, uh, Friday the Thirteenth: Vengeance has has come out, which is a which is a fan funded film and they contacted me and said would you mind if we do jason's father and we also want to have cj graham who played your jason play the father and i said well okay well you know i didn't run with the ball go ahead you know so they basically kind of took that storyline and they they have that in where jason and his son actually meet up you know in the movie and i have a cameo at the very beginning of the movie which was fun for me because i got to play opposite cj and my jason and i was the and i was the character Taker taking care of both Pamela Voorhees' grave and and Jason's, and I'm the one that gives him the information that's not Jason that's down in that grave. You know, it's actually Horshack, um, but I don't say that. No, it, it's uh, <laughs> it. It was just great fun to, to you know to do the part and uh, and to work with CJ you know in that capacity. And how can we watch that? Is that available online or? Yeah, yeah, on YouTube. Yeah, just go on YouTube and you know type in Friday the Thirteenth Vengeance, and uh, there it is. And and like all these fan films, they can't you know they can't make money off of them. So the money for this film goes to the uh, Shriners Children's Hospital, and uh, you know they just took enough money to make the movie, and now you know everything is you know basically goes into uh, you know charity. Whoever would have thought Jason would be doing something for a good cause. I know. Yeah, you know, go figure. You know, he's such he's a good guy. On, he's going to be on a box of cereals. <laughs> and you kind of mentioned it there with the uh, the gravekeeper, or whatever. You know, there was a wink and a nod. I know Scream gets all the the accolades for that, but Friday the Thirteenth Part Six, I feel, also did that. Kind of winked and nod at the audience, like, "Hey, we kind of know we're in a horror film, and here's what you don't yeah. do." Well, here, here's the interesting thing too about that is that uh, I was sent the script called Scary Movie, which was Scream when Kevin Williamson wow. first wrote it. It went out as as a scary movie, so I read it. You know, uh, I was reading a bunch of scripts trying to look for you know the next movie, and I called my agent. And I said, "This is really good. I really like this, but you know, it's so close to what I already did in terms of doing the satire." of a horror movie. Um, I, I don't know if I should, I, you know, what else you got? So I, I, I passed on it and do you regret that? Oh, of course. Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> but, but here, here's the one tiny certainly doesn't make up for the tons of money that you know, could have been made in my pocket and put in my pocket from, from, from it. But years later I um, met Kevin Williamson and we're talking about this other project. I think it was a TV thing. And he said, you know, I got to tell you that, you know, you're, Jason Lives was a huge influence on my, you know, movie Scream. And I said, God damn it, I knew it, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I thought that, that sounded a little familiar, but I said, no, in seriousness, it's like, I, I'm honored you say that, because, I mean, to me, they're very different, but there is that whole reference, you know, to being hip, particularly that first scene, to to horror movies and, and uh, all, all the tropes and things. So, uh, but it, it, it was nice to know that, you know, it had, had an influence on it. And another influence at the beginning credits, there's an homage to James Bond with the oh, yeah. uh, with Jason. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Yeah. 
them. Yeah, the ultimate franchise at that time. I don't know if it still is. You know, at the most amount of, you know, movies made off of a, a one character. It was obviously the James Bond thing. So I th- just thought it'd be cool to immediately wink at the audience and say, "Look, you know, we're we're going to have fun with this. Um, it's not going to be, you know, to be taken totally seriously." And I could be wrong, but it felt like that was the first Jason movie where he's actually in daytime doing his dirty work. You know, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, it was always at night, it seemed like. He was in the shrubbery yeah. or the trees, and it was always dark. But when I was watching it the other night, I was like, I don't remember this many kids ever being in one of these movies. And I definitely oh, yeah. don't remember him being in daylight, just walking around like it's nothing. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I didn't accomplish that I really wanted to is all those daytime scenes were supposed to be in a burnt-out forest, that he was going through a forest that was all blackened. I see. You know, so grand, and so I really wanted to have that, you know, Jason and obviously the colors of the mask and the green of his shirt and stuff, you know, be in contrast with the just the, you know, sheer blackness of a, of a forest fire. But we could not find one. You could not find an area where we were shooting. That, oh, you weren't just going to go burn fires. down a forest and, and film there? You weren't going to yeah. do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, this, of course, you know, I guess in these days you would just put him in green screen and put the burned forest there. In you go. There. But um, no, we didn't have that. So I, you know, I, I just I tried to make it as dark as we could make it in terms of color timing at the end of it, so that it didn't feel like too bright a sunlight. Um, but yeah, it is it is tricky because whenever you put the monster in full light, it's not quite as scary. So you have to be you know careful how how long you stay on him, how long you you know hold those shots and things because you start to look at too many details. But um, you know, it was. I mean, for me, I I love the idea of of having him. You know, in that in the challenge of a daytime situation, see if you can pull it off. But I, yeah, I can't say for certain if if that's not happened, if it's not happened since in any of the other movies. I know, yeah, Frank, you know the the Vengeance film. I know they've got daytime stuff with him, so I know they've kind of you know they they their movie has a lot of nods to to mine, which you know was greatly you know was greatly honored by that. As I recall, they always arrived in the daytime and everything's nice and sunny. And then it's usually at night. It's when, you know, all, all hell yeah. breaks loose, you know, usually for the of campers. Course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just basic horror 101. Yeah. Right. You know, all, all scary things happen when it's dark. That is true. Another thing that's different from this movie and other Friday the 13th movies is the lack of nudity. Was that a conscious effort or was uh, something with rating, anything like that? No, it it really came about. I mean, the only scene that I had it was the one in the motorhome with uh, with Darcy Damas. And when we got to the, the the moment, you know, and I said to her, you know, how do you feel about doing this with your top off? And she goes, Do you really have to have my top off? And kind of looked at me with these eyes, <laughs> right. and I said, Well, is that a problem? And she goes, Well, only in that, you know, I never signed an agreement for nudity and all. And I go, Look. I'm not. I'm not here to exploit. I'm here to make the scene funny and fun. And you're riding on him and stuff. So, you know, um, you know, if you if you're not comfortable, fine. You know. So we just didn't do it. But I've gotten more. You know, I wouldn't say flack, but question. You know, why did you do that? Why did you <laughs> so, you know, it's it's funny. Here's the ironic thing: is that this is I just received this package, which is uh, Jason's. Um, oh. oh head from vengeance the guys who created the the the, the, the mask and cool the face you know just sent me as a as a thank you for doing the film i mean I, there's more stuff that i get in terms of fan mail and, and gifts and of course you know autographing stuff from this movie that you know 35 years ago and you think it, as we all thought all that stuff we did in the 80s would be quickly forgotten and you know 
and maybe somebody would remember it like from seeing it on some old you know tv show or something uh tv movie but um you know it just survived all these all these decades Incredible. 30 years later, here we are talking about Jason Lives, and like you said, you're doing conventions, and I'm sure fans approach you probably all the time and mention their favorite scenes or moments from that movie. So it's probably, I'm sure it's very gratifying for you to, to still kind of be living in that. Yeah, it is. But, you know, I reached a point, though, where I went, you know, I'm, I'm so tired of talking about things that I did so long ago. I want to start talking about something now. So the one thing that has come up uh, so many times in the last 30 years is, are you going to make another one? And I said, you know, I have no no reason not to other than I don't have a great idea. I, I want to, like, if I'm going to do another one, I just want to have come up with something that's fresh, something that's different, something the fans would really love. So uh, it literally wasn't until about a year, year and a half ago that I finally came up with this idea, which then spawned a whole bunch of other ideas in and around it. So I got, you know, very excited and started writing this script called Jason Never Dies, and uh, which would be basically Friday the 13th, 13, you know, that'd be the 13th one of them. It seems too and, obvious uh, to do that. I mean, yeah, number 13, right? Yeah, um, it just so happens, yeah, it counts out to that. But there's this huge lawsuit that's been going on between Victor Miller, who wrote the original script for Friday the 13th, the movie, um, and Sean Cunningham, who was the director and the producer on all the ones that have, you know, not all the ones, but he's, he's been attached to all the movies after that. And Victor's basically got his rights back to that um, film, that script, um, when it hit the 35-year mark. So that turned into this huge lawsuit where Victor wants to be, you know, included on all the, you know, future ones. And Sean basically says, no, you know, you were a gun for hire and that's it. So they've, they've been battling it out in the courts literally for the last almost 10 years now. And um, Victor eventually won. You know, and all he can do though is basically remake Friday the Thirteenth, but he can use the title, and that wasn't to Sean's satisfaction in terms of what was decided. So he appealed it. So the appeal looked like it was going to not happen, and the whole thing was going to work out. So at that point is when I sort of, you know, finished the script and kind of announced I've got this Friday the Thirteenth, and then the appeal went through. So all the breaks went on. So now we're not sure when. This is going to get resolved. They're hoping by sometime next year, but you know, no one knows for sure. And uh, you know, of course, it's not 100% either that Warner Brothers and New Line, who who kind of own the distribution of it, will you know absolutely love my script. I don't know, but what I what I've sort of leaked to the fans and stuff, um, the fact that it's going to be the first Jason movie that's in the snow. Um, oh, which they've wow. never done before. And uh, it's basically going to be an all-female cast other than Jason in it, you know, that are going to be the, you know, the heroes, the victims and the thing. Um, and it's going to take place literally 13 years after mine. So it's 1999, which is, of course, right on the cusp of Y2K, which doesn't directly have to do with the story. But it sort of was a time period where everybody was a bit nervous that things yeah, were going to go wrong right. when we hit 2000. So I've tried to put all these elements into it and also make it more of a period Friday because I know the fans just love that, you know, that look of the, you know, the 80s and 90s. Um, and so, you know, I, I 
put all the stuff in, plus a whole bunch of surprises, things that, you know, that, that people will hopefully go, oh, my God, why didn't anybody ever think of that before? So the look of Jason's going to be just slightly different. There's going to be a few things that, you know, in there that uh, haven't been done before. But the big thing is, you know, doing it, you know, in a winter, winter setting, at, you know, in the forest that hasn't been, you know, exploited before that is exciting to hear and as a fan of course you know really hoping that gets all settled and we get to see that movie get made that sounds like that would be awesome for sure yeah i think so i mean every time i think about it as a fan i go i would love to see that you know so hopefully i can you know get the opportunity to do it one last thing about jason lives when you finished it with the ending and everything was there uh, any idea that there would be a part seven and did you have to end it a certain way so there could be another movie afterwards yeah it was you know nobody wants to give up a successful franchise but they really weren't sure how mine would do following the one that so many people were disappointed with and of course you know we had two strikes against us when it was released one was it was the second week of aliens you know the jim cameron oh right you know movie uh so that was still kicking ass at the box office and secondly you know it it was uh it was only a year instead of waiting two years they got so nervous that they were going to lose their fans after part five that they rushed this you know into production to get it done you know a year ahead of time so it didn't have that same cachet of making the audience kind of wait and forget if they were upset you know it's like you know two years have gone by oh hell i'll give it a chance but as a result of both of those two things, the the film and and the time frame, it didn't have the same box office that a lot of the other ones had in terms of its of its opening. So, it, you know, there was a question whether it was going to you know spawn another sequel. But as it as it went on, and the fact that we got really good reviews, which never happened, you know, on a Friday because they, the critics enjoyed the humor of it and the fact that we were making fun of ourselves as we right. were doing it and stuff, it just you know gave them all you know a uh, uh, hope that there could be yet another one to come out of this and i left the ending of course somewhat open-ended I, all i wanted to do story-wise is to put jason back down in camp crystal lake where he supposedly first drowned and then leave you with his eye staring at you that okay he's down there but he's still alive right so you know it did you know we could keep him you could keep him there for years or you can you know <laughs> bring him back <laughs> You know, with the with the, which was what they ended up doing. The Tina character in Part Seven, you know, had the psychic you know power to bring him back. So um, yeah, and since that time, obviously, you know, they've gone on to make like five more, six more of these things. Right, and that scene where he's going into the water—it's almost like Terminator slash Jaws. Like he's just coming right at Tommy in the boat, and mm-hmm. he's this unstoppable machine, killing machine. You know, basically. Yeah, making him undead. You know, it's like you can't kill something's already dead. So all the right. bullets, all the stuff—you know—is now nothing really should stop him. And I wanted to ask you about One Dark Night. Being a comic book nerd, what was it like working with Adam West? You know. Obviously, everybody <laughs> loves Batman, loves Adam West. Yeah, you know, I hired Adam purely because, you know, I've, I saw a lot of people come in, and it, was, it wasn't like a great part, you know, it was kind of a thankless part in a way, because, you know, the story really is about the girls and, you know, the teenagers and, and his wife. Um, but he came in, and um, the cast, no, he actually, he didn't come in. We, I just had an interview with him uh, over the phone, and the casting director said, you know, no one will hire him because he's Batman. And I went, Oh, I hate that. That's, you know, that's awful. You know, he did a great job as Batman, you know, you know, I want to have him in. So when we started working together on the movie, uh, shooting the scenes, 
you know, Adam had this tendency to go, well, you know, Tom, I could start the line up here and then I could bring it down a little lower because it's very interesting when your voice goes up and down, which I really, you know, is the way that Batman talked, you know. That's a great <laughs> impression, like, by the way. It's like Adam was right here. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I said, like, you know, can you just like flatten that out? And he goes, well, what do you mean? And it's just straight, you know. So, I mean, I really worked very hard to get that that out of his voice because i was afraid that people would would just start laughing because it is very much the way you know batman would do things so i managed to do that in the shooting and then the irony was is that you know after the movie was done the company went went down and somebody else took it over and they decided that they wanted to you know improve on my movie and shoot some additional stuff oh, great. and it brought you know, and they brought Adam back in and did a scene with him and his wife. And, you know, he went right back to that same voice thing again. So, you know, part of the movie has it and part of it doesn't. But in terms of just working with him, he really was a wonderful guy, you know, really sweet, very funny, um, you know, very, very uh, self-effacive about things. And, you know, it was just very, very much a, a you know, a, a wonderful guy who was, a, you know, obviously a huge, huge star who, you know, just was willing to take a part because he liked to act. So it, it was good. And I saw on your Facebook page, you're obviously a musician. You could talk about your band. What uh, what instruments do you play? What, what kind of music do you guys do? Where can we hear yeah. your music? Well, yeah, um, my musical past actually started in the mid-60s uh, when I was still a teenager and we formed this group called The Floss. Um, like the cute little furry things, but back in those days, you know, what we knew of sloth was, you know, lazy and (laughs) (laughs) sit around, you know, uh, smoking weed and and watching rock and roll on MTV. So normal. um, (laughs) Yeah. But uh, we we had the band for, you know, uh, I guess about two years, and we opened for The Doors and Iron Butterfly. Wow, that's a big deal. All these groups, and, uh, you know, we were just teenagers that managed to get into these clubs. They never checked the IDs. And the band eventually broke up, and everybody went different directions. Some stayed in music. You know, I went off into mime um, because I I was the lead singer of, of the Sloths, and I wanted to be more physical in my you know, impersonations of, you know, or, or my way of interpreting a song, I should say, you know, it's as physical as rather than just dancing like James Brown or Mick Jagger, you know, I wanted uh-huh. to take it another level, which is what led me into the mime study. And then once I was in Paris and started seeing all these, you know, wonderful international films and stuff, I realized, no, I really want to, you know, be a director, which took me off into that. But here here we go like eight years ago i guess it's been seven years ago um this record that was recorded by the sloths called making love that couldn't be played on the on the air on the air, airplay you know am airplay um because of the title making love was too provocative suddenly we find out that that little 45 was uh, like a cult classic and was part of a of a compilation of records that were put out in the 80s called you know back from the grave and it was all these like unknown bands that that these guys had managed to find their music so we were like this cult status that we had no idea of um so we got contacted by a bunch of different um music publications because making loves had sold on ebay seven years ago uh, for $6,650 for a little 45. So they wanted to know who the hell were these guys that are <laughs> right. still alive, you know. And that kind of is what brought us all back together again. That's and awesome. Joke, you know, jokingly, I said, well, why don't we, why don't we play? I, now, but I had not played or sung in 45 years. So it was a, you know, 
big deal to kind of go back and go into that. So I started taking vocal lessons, which I'm still taking to try to be a better singer. And, um, you know, worked on the harmonica. I got a harmonica teacher to be better at that. And we just started doing these gigs. And at this point, we've probably done 300 shows. We've got a music video, a couple music videos, one called One Way Out, which is on YouTube that you can see, the Sloss One Way Out. And the other is uh, The Amityville Murders, uh, oh, Before wow. I Die. You know, so we got a song on that, you know, The Amityville Murders, Before I Die, which is also on, on there. And then you can just see us performing live on YouTube. There's a bunch of things. And then a record, we took the title, you know, Back from the Grave, The Sloss. And so we have an album and, um, you know, a new album that we're working on now. And just came back two days ago from Texas, where we were down doing a mini tour of all the, you know, cities in Texas. So for a bunch of guys in their 60s who should be on golf carts, you know. <laughs> And, you know, and, and, and have, you know, <laughs> you know, somebody walking with a right. walker with next to us, um, you know, we're, we're out there, you know, kind of killing it. And uh, as a physical performer, you know, I'm still doing these things that I shouldn't be doing at my age, you know, throwing myself into the audience and, you know, <laughs> and we got explosions and smoke and fire and flashes. And, you know, it's like all the stuff that I was doing in the 60s, sort of pre-Alice Cooper um, and then Alice, of course, taking it to a huge, you know, shock rock, right. you know, thing. But yeah, and then ironically ended up getting Alice to do the music for Friday, too. But, you know, we're both in that same school that it's about the performance and uh, you know, doing something that the audience, you know, can see and, and wants to go to the shows rather than just listen to the music. But, uh, yeah, if you want to hear the band, yeah, it's, we're available on, you know, iTunes and Spotify. And I think we have our own channel on Pandora, the Sloss. So it's been, it's been fun, you know, that, and we just keep doing it, you know, and, uh, kind of, you know, rock till we drop. If you guys ever come to Chicago, I'm going to have to find my way into checking you guys out. Yeah. Yeah. I, we actually, I was in Chicago at some, uh, God, it was like a horror, like an all night horror festival. Then, and I, it's been a couple of years, so I can't remember the venue, but I actually did uh, Man Behind the Mask live with a band, Chicago band, that was there um, and, uh, you know, signed things and stuff. But I love Chicago. I'd lo love to get back there again. That would be awesome. And uh, so what are you working on now besides the things you've mentioned? Or feel free to mention them again so people people have a short memory sometimes. You know, everything that people should be looking up and seeing what you're up to now. Yeah, well, the band is an ongoing thing. So, you know, as I've mentioned all those things, uh, we have a website too, you know, the sloss.org. You can check out upcoming shows and stuff that, that we're doing. Um, you know, the script, uh, Jason Never Dies, um, is hopefully going to be, you know, in, in the production at some point, somewhere in the next year or two, if the lawsuit all, you know, goes well. Um, and then I've been just writing some more kind of little more indie horror movies you know some ideas that i thought were fresh and different from what we've seen before so i've been you know scripting those and you know the writing process always is difficult for me i'm you know much preferred directing and and performing because it's more instantaneous you know writing it's all about rewriting and rewriting and rewriting to try to get it right but i'm you know plugging away on those things um and then in the meantime i'm also teaching at uh teaching film teaching film production and film direction at uh, chapman university in orange county uh dodge college where uh, you know a lot of great new filmmakers have come out the stranger things 
Duffer Brothers, uh, you know, were, were students from from Dodge, and of course they're doing quite well with Stranger Things. Yes, so <laughs> big time. Very proud of them. But it's it's great to work with a new generation of filmmakers too, and both kind of influence them and inspire them, and then also you know be blown away by new ideas and be able to sit there and go, man, I've never seen that before. That's exciting. You know, you you got to keep working in that direction. So it's you know it's a great way creatively, you know, to be able to you know keep keep in the game and keep seeing where all the technical innovations keep you know coming in too it's just amazing what you can do now with a friggin iphone oh wow you know? yeah not even <laughs> nothing like yeah. it was back then at yeah. all i mean if steven soderbergh can make two films with an iphone you figure okay you know <laughs> it, it, it's working right well hopefully that new jason movie gets made and the slots do a song for it that would be the ultimate yeah yeah that's that's that would be the key Oh, Tommy, I really appreciate your time and, and talking to me about uh, Jason Lives and everything you're working on now. It was really a pleasure. And as I said, that's of all the Friday 13th movies, everybody loves the first one and the first four are really good. But the sixth one is really, I feel like it's a good one to kind of introduce people to the franchise. It's just always been one of my favorites. Well, thank you so much. I so much appreciate that. Oh, for sure. Thanks so much, Tommy. I really appreciate your time. Okay, Mark. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Ada Zang, and you're listening to Infinite Banter Podcast. Wow, really awesome talking to Tommy McLaughlin about Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6. One of my, like I said, I'll keep saying it, it's one of my favorite, favorite movies in that franchise. And speaking of horror movies and my favorites, I said I was going to talk about some of the underrated horror films I feel like don't get enough love. Well, I'm going to give them some love here, and this is a good segue Here's 10 movies. There's no order. I'm not saying this is number one, number 10, none of that. I'm just, this is just 10 that I, off the top of my head, that I listed. And I wanted to give uh, you guys a few of these names so that you can go out there and maybe watch these yourself. It's Halloween coming up. Good time to watch these flicks. Sometimes they don't pop up on TV, so you might have to go seek them out. But these are all movies that I feel are underrated. Some of the better movies in the horror genre that just don't get the publicity and the recognition that they deserve. So I'll just go down the list here. Jason Lives, the one we've just been talking about the whole show here. Definitely one of my favorites. Before Scream, like we talked about with Tommy. It's just one of those movies that had a good sense of comedy balance. And was kind of a wink and a nod to the fans watching it. So it really is a payoff for those that are a big fan of the Jason series. Another favorite movie of mine that's in one of the long series of the serial killing slashing 80s horror icons is in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. The movie that really doesn't get enough publicity is New Nightmare, and that one came out in 1994. And that's the one where Wes Craven, Heather Langenkamp, Robert England, they're all playing themselves. There's still an element of Freddy, and it's really, really cool how they do it. it they take kind of the point of view of like here's real life and then here's the movies and it's they just find a good way of putting them all together and I feel like it's a really creative way of kind of re-injecting some life into that franchise so New Nightmare if you've never seen that one I definitely recommend it there is Them the 2006 film it's in French so you have to watch the subtitles and this is the movie that The Strangers was based off of Strangers is kind of a remake of it the American version which is actually pretty decent but Them is much better it's if you were always afraid of somebody coming into your home when you're sleeping or whatever, this is definitely going to scare you. I mean, that's what really did it for me. A couple of my movies on here have subtitles because I prefer the originals more often than the remakes. So yeah, if you ever get a chance, check out Them. It came out in 2006. It's French and uh, it's just really good. It's I, I like that kind of where you don't know where somebody is, like that boogeyman aspect. That's what I think made Michael Myers so great. 
is that you didn't know that somebody was after you. So them would be another one of mine on my 10 movies that are very underrated in the horror genre. Uh, the fourth one I'd list here is, this could easily, if I was actually listing these as 1 through 10, Suspiria 1977 would be the toppers. Uh, that one, I just saw it recently like five years ago for the first time. I kept hearing about it, just never got around to watching it. It is incredible. The visuals in it, it still stands up. I would recommend this movie. Out of everything I'm saying here, that's the one you should stop what you're doing and go watch it. Suspiria, 1977. Really, really good. I can't say enough good things about that one. It's just it's one of those all-time classic horror genre movies. And as I said, it's in the list of underrated because we just don't talk about it enough. Another one I'll mention here is Martyrs, the 2008 version. And I keep mentioning the years because a lot of these movies have an, a remake or another version of it. So I like the 2008 French version, the original. Again, subtitles will be, when you're watching it, you'll have to, unless you speak French, I don't. Whenever I watch a horror movie or anything, if there's something that kind of gets me, you know, some people will close their eyes with their hands or they'll look away. I do this thing where I kick my foot in the air. And, I, and in this movie, I think I kicked like five or six times. I mean, it's, it, that's how much my reaction was to it. It was hard to watch at times. It's a torture movie kind of, and it's, uh, it definitely is one of those that, that hit me and stuck with me for a while. So definitely would recommend seeing Martyrs, the 2008 French version. One of my favorite movies, regardless of the genre, is The Descent. It came out in 2005, starring Natalie Mendoza. She plays Juno. It kind of has that feel of like Time Machine, if you remember that, like the Morlocks and the Eloy. It's basically a group of women, they go into a cave and they're spelunking. I think that's the word. And they're, they're basically discovering this cave. Like nobody's ever gone in there before. So they go in there and I'm not trying to spoil too much, but things go wrong. There's monsters in there and it is great. There's a sequel that comes out. It's not as good as the original, but it's definitely worth watching. But I love The Descent. It's a, it's a lot of close corners. So if you're claustrophobic, that'll get you. If you're ever scared of falling because they're hanging from, you know, sides of the cave, things like that, it's really, really good. The cover's iconic. It's it's kind of got a carry feel because one of the characters, she's in like a pool of blood, and it's just really, really good. So I definitely recommend watching The Descent. Another one I really like, and it's on this list, is Audition. came out in 1999, and again, you'll need the subtitles. It's in Japanese. It's just one of those movies that takes a little bit of time to get to where it's going, but when it does, the payoff is so great. Kind of like watching The Bachelor or something uh, with horror is is like kind of the backdrop for it. So if you've never seen Audition, that's another one I would definitely recommend checking out. It's just one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, Japan was for a long time, still is, we're making some of the best horror films, you know, like The Ring and Grudge and all that. And... Of course, there's American remakes of those, but Audition's one that I don't believe ever got remade, and it's it's definitely one of its one of its better ones. Definitely, definitely check out Audition. In 1974, Black Christmas came out. There's been a remake of that one as well. Of course, I always want the original. Big cast in here. You got Margot Kidder, Olivia Hussey, Andrea Martin, John Saxon playing the policeman who doesn't believe what's going on. Very reminiscent of Nightmare on Elm Street. There's two things about this movie that really are innovative. One, it's from the point of view of the killer, and Halloween had not come out yet, so it's kind of pre-Michael Myers. You would almost have to assume Michael Myers, Halloween, that whole version of the camera looking in as the killer was inspired by this movie. And, of course, it has the line, they call us coming from inside the house. You don't hear that anywhere else before that. 
This is the movie where it started. So Black Christmas 1974, definitely check that one out. Before Bradley Cooper was doing those hangover movies, he did The Midnight Meat Train. It's based off of a short story by Clive Barker back in 1984. And this one's really good. There's this killer, I believe it's Vinnie Jones is playing him. He's on this train and it's it's really cool. And I remember watching like Bradley Cooper. Like you, you go back now and you can't believe he did a movie like this. But, you know, he wasn't the big star that he is now. So if you want to see him pre-Hangover and everything else he's done, this one's really good. So definitely check out The Midnight Meat Train. And I love Clive Barker. We all know him from Hellraiser and stuff like that. So Midnight Meat Train, Bradley Cooper before he was Bradley Cooper. And the final one, these are my top 10, like I said, horror movies that are underrated and don't get enough pub. Uh, this one here, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, starring Michael Rooker. Most of us know him from The Walking Dead as Merle Dixon, Daryl's brother. And this movie creeped me out, 1986. I watched it maybe 15 years ago for the first time. And it's set in Chicago, where I live, where I'm at. And at the time, I was working a job where I was parking in Lower Wacker. And there's a scene where something happens in Lower Wacker, and it scared the crap out of me. I didn't want to ever park or go in Lower Wacker ever again. For those that don't know what Lower Wacker is, if you ever watch The Dark Knight, there's that scene where Joker and the, what were they doing there? Moving Harvey Dent from different locations. All those scenes underneath, where they're kind of like an underneath uh, underground road, that was all on Lower Wacker in Chicago. So Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer was... There's a scene down there, and it's it's creepy as hell, and it made me never want to go down to Lower Wacker again. I mean, it's already scary without knowing that movie, but if you watch that movie, I guarantee you will never, ever go to Lower Wacker again. So just to recap, uh, the 10 movies I feel like everybody should watch that have that maybe you have not seen, maybe not have heard of, in my opinion, these are 10 movies that are very underrated in the horror genre. So we got Friday the 13th Part 6, New Nightmare, Them, the 2006 version, Suspiria, the 1977 version, Martyrs, the 2008 version, The Descent, Audition, Black Christmas, the 1974 version, The Midnight Meat Train, and Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Those are my 10. Check those out. I'll probably pull a couple of those out from the shelf and watch them to celebrate this Halloween that's coming up. I always like watching horror flicks, even if I have to watch it by myself because the girlfriend and the baby cannot be in the same room, of course. So I'll go ahead and check these out and be scared by myself with the lights off. This is Infinite Banner Radio, the dopest podcast for that ass. And I'm Cool Kim, a.k.a. NYOLA Ideal, with that demo music. Yeah. So feel free to give some feedback on at Infinite Banter on Twitter, at Infinite Banter on Facebook. I'm on Instagram at DJ Soundwave 75. I'm curious what you guys think of those 10 horror flicks that I gave as the most underrated. There's some that I missed out on, some that you think I should watch. I'm, I can't watch everything. I'm sure there's stuff I've missed. So we'll love to hear your guys' feedback on that. All right, let's get to a couple things here. Fear the Walking Dead finale, The Walking Dead season opener. First, I have to, uh, I think enough time has passed since Fear the Walking Dead finished. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because the show is not worth it. So there's going to be some spoiler stuff here. I'm not sure if Morgan is dead or not. And I'll be honest with you, I hope that show is dead because it's terrible. It really took a wrong turn these last couple of years. I don't know what, what the point of this show is. They moved Morgan as well as Dwight over to this, this show. And that's part of the reason why I watched it. I already watched it as is and I'm going to watch it because I'm a loyalist and I'm going to keep watching The Walking Dead stuff. But I don't feel like moving Dwight really mattered. It hasn't helped the show. And moving Morgan over there, it's just become Morgan and friends. He's just running around with his staff and a bunch of people that you sort of care about their characters. 
But the one thing I'll say is that I do like that the show is taking a different route than The Walking Dead, but at the same time, I don't know what the point of it is. So the finale, there's this group of people, I don't know what they're called, they're Calamity Jane, whatever her name is, you know, she's she's got a group and she's trying to get Morgan's group to join them and uh, on her terms. And Morgan and friends show up at some, I don't know, some sort of like Wild West kind of town or something that was there and they, they clean it out from the zombies and then they decide to join Calamity Jane's crew. But in order to do so, Morgan had to die in the process. I didn't understand it. Why horses always have to die on this show, Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead, is beyond me. If you're a horse, you're just you're not going to make it. You're just going to die every time. But they, they round up these walkers, they clear out the area, and then they just agree to go with this this woman and her people just because, and they're all separated. It made no sense. Like, all that effort they did to clean it out, why don't they just stay there and live there? It, it just It's mind-boggling what this show is trying to do. I, I just don't get it. And apparently, Grace was impregnated by Morgan. I'll be honest with you, I didn't even know how that happened. They showed them on a carousel, and the next thing you know, she's whisked away in a car with some doctor guy, and he's saying that she's pregnant. That's why she's not feeling good. Not that they need to show it on screen, but they did not insinuate at all that there was ever anything going on between them other than some some chemistry. So I didn't know you can get impregnated by sitting on a carousel, but apparently that's what happened. Morgan just uh, took his staff at <laughs> the, the right end and got her pregnant, and he's either dead or he's going to somehow survive being shot by Calamity Jane. That's what I'm going to call her because I already forgot her name, and it's not worth knowing her character's name is, or he makes it. I'm not really sure. They left it like he's going to die and get eaten by walkers as he's sitting there bleeding out. But they cleaned out this place. They had the wedding for John and what's-her-name, and I don't know, I'm just, I'm kind of babbling about this a little bit because I don't really know where the show is going, and I'm on the fence about ever watching it again. But I like Morgan's character, I did like Dwight's, and there's a part where Dwight is talking to Sherry on the walkie-talkie, and then he can't get a good signal, so he throws the walkie-talkie, and it makes no sense. You spent all these years looking for her, and you finally hear from her, and you throw away the one thing that can connect you to her. It made zero sense. I really hate watch this show, but I'll probably watch it when it comes back to see if Morgan dies. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really pissed off with Fear of the Walking Dead. But The Walking Dead, season 10, that premiere was pretty good. Finally brought Oceanside back. I've been wondering what happened to these people for all the end of season 9. They really weren't part of it after uh, the first few episodes. Pretty good opener. Uh, nothing really traumatic happened in it. Uh, obviously, the, the whispers are still around. Uh, a mask is found. The end of it is really cool when... Carol comes back. She's standing where they're not supposed to be because they've crossed the border. Out of nowhere pops up Alpha. And she's standing there, and Carol is looking down at her from above. And there's kind of a stare down. It's almost like the two boxes are getting ready to go at it, and they're kind of looking at each other pre-match. It kind of feels like that. It's like, okay, these two are about to, here we go. Here's our heavyweight fight, Carol versus Alpha. Although in the comics, Negan kills her, so I don't know if they're going to stick with that storyline or do something different. But uh, Carol definitely deserves that revenge because of what happened to Henry. So I'm excited about Walking Dead. Fear the Walking Dead. I'm kind of like I wish this show would just go away. Uh, put Morgan and Dwight back on Walking Dead. Even absorb all the characters. Put some of them on Walking Dead. I just I don't know where it's going. I don't understand what any of it is. So I had to go on a little tirade there. Sorry about that. I had to do it. So uh, Walking Dead, excited about that. And I'm also excited about American Horror Story 1984 
And since I was talking so much about Jason Voorhees in the Friday 13th series with Tommy McLaughlin, that one is essentially Jason. They're calling him Mr. Jingles, and the guy who plays Mr. Jingles, a lot of you remember, he was Eastman on The Walking Dead, the cheesemaker that taught Morgan how to use the bow staff and everything. And he was Twisty the Clown on that one season of American Horror Story. So I'm really liking it because I love slasher films and the 80s vibe and everything. It's really cool. And um, up to episode three, I believe there's four that are out. So I was wondering what everybody thought about that show. I really like it a lot. It's uh, definitely a throwback. The only thing that's kind of hard to understand is I guess everybody's a villainous, murdering idiot on the show. So (laughs) you don't know who the good guys are. Uh, And it's hard to like any of the characters, to be honest, because there's so many different killers on it. Every week there's like another person he didn't know was a killer was a killer. So it's a little different from the Jason movies instead of just like one person is doing all the killing. In this one, Mr. Jingles is the main villain, but there's other ones also, a lot, lot of uh, subplots and side villains and such. So I don't know if that'll get too convoluted. I'll see where the show goes, but I'm definitely liking what I've seen so far. So Fear the Walking Dead can go away. Just keep Morgan and Dwight and bring them back to the regular show. And I'm excited about the new season of The Walking Dead. And I'm optimistic that American Horror Story 1984 is going to keep going in the right direction. All right, let's talk about the top 10 MCs list that I've been doing. Yo, what's going on, y'all? This is Ramses Ali, representing one-third of the Bar Gods, North New Jersey. And I'm here right now with DJ Soundwave on Infinite Banter Podcast. Tune in. So I've been doing, for the last few episodes, I've been doing my top 10 MCs of all time, in my opinion. I'm not saying, like I said before, this is my criteria. I'm not expecting everybody to agree with it. I'm not even saying that I'm right and you're wrong. This is just who I like. These are the ones that get me going. These are my favorite MCs. So number 10, I had Ghostface Killer. Number 9, I had Redman. And the last episode, I revealed number 8, which was Cool G Rap, who might have fit better in this Halloween-type episode. But number 7 kind of works, too, because of the name of his two albums, and that is a Notorious B.I.G., the one and only Christopher Wallace. Some people might say that's a little low. I have him only number seven. Many have him as number one. I'll just say this. Because his career was cut short, unfortunately, because of his passing, I just feel like over time there's less material for his legacy to grow. And unfortunately, it's really just those those two albums. And unfortunately, Ready to Die is the only one that was even around when he was alive. So Ready to Die, Life After Death, two horror-type uh, <laughs> titles there, so they fit with the episode here. Biggie is one of the all-time greats, no doubt about it. Great lyricist. And uh, really took things to the next level in the mid-90s, and uh, working with Puff Daddy and everything there. I'm just a big fan of Biggie, always liked him, but he's not in my favorites. He's not in my top three, as some people would say he probably deserves to be. But for me, he's one of the all-time greats, and Seven's not too shabby. That's pretty good. And if he had lived longer and made more songs, more records, he probably would be higher up on my list. Because of that, I feel that hinders him a little bit. Some might disagree, but uh, yeah, Notorious B.I.G., Number seven, and you know, you get thrown ready to die right now from start to finish, and you don't have to skip any of the songs. All time classic, some of the great lyrics of all time, very quotable, and you know, Life After Death, the double album. Unfortunately, he wasn't around for most of that. You know, when it, when it came out, it wasn't around very long after its release, so he didn't get to see how well it was received and how well it did. So, uh, rest in peace, and Tori's B.I.G., but definitely one of the all time greats. And on my list, he's number seven. So big up to Notorious B.I.G. And before I go, one last hip-hop thing. The 20th anniversary of Most Deaf Black on Both Sides is today, October 12th. And that's one of my favorite albums. I mean, you could play, again, it's like Ready to Die. You could play Most Deaf Black on Both Sides, backwards, forwards. I might actually go play it today. Such a great album. If you don't like that album, you don't like hip-hop. That's all I got to say. 
So most deaf, black on both sides. Happy anniversary, 20 years. Man, it makes me feel old. And happy birthday to MC Light. She turns 49 years old. Time for you to leave, assholes. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Big, big, big thank you to Tommy McLaughlin. I couldn't thank him enough. It was so fun talking to him about Friday the 13th and everything he's done in his career and his music and everything. Make sure you guys follow him on Facebook and look up his music and the stuff he's done that's on YouTube. The Sloss Band, his music. Really cool talking to him and getting some insight on what went into making Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter at Infinite Banter, Facebook at Infinite Banter. I'm on Instagram at DJ Soundwave 75. This show can be found on podcast.com, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Mixcloud, Castbox, Blueberry, Chartable, all the places you find podcasts on digital platforms. I'm there. The show is there. So definitely check it out. And like I said, one more time, thank you so much to Tommy McLaughlin. Really, really fun talking to him. Such a huge fan of the Jason series and that movie in particular. So thanks for checking out the show. On the next episode, I will reveal number six on my top 10 MCs of all time list. So that's it. Thanks for checking out the show. Go check out Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Go watch what me and Tommy were talking about. It's such a great movie and it's timeless and it still holds up to this day. And those other movies I mentioned, you know, feel free to check them out. Suspiria should be high on your list. If you haven't seen it, go check that out. All right, I'm out of here. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate everybody who's been listening. And until the next episode, I'm out.